Today's reading will be from Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19, which can be found on page 14 of the Church Bibles. Sometime later, God said, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. He took him with two of the servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Thank you, James. It's been great to be with you these last couple of weeks. Uh, Sue sends her apologies today. Uh, she would normally be with me, but today she's actually at Trinity in the city, and she's gone there because uh, we're commissioning the core group for a, a new congregation that's starting there for Mandarin speakers. So we found in the city that uh, we've had an increasing number of uh, people from China coming to Australia, and they have shown a real interest in the gospel. And so it seemed right to be studying a new gathering to actually be able to speak the gospel to them and to teach them in their heart language. So the, the leaders have been commissioned today. Next week, the, uh, the gathering itself will start up. And so that's, that's a very exciting thing for them in the city. And so Sue, Sue is there sort of flying the flag for the family. And uh, I'm out here and we're opening up the word together. But uh, I'd really be asking if you would to pray for that new congregation. First time actually across the network that we've done something in a non 
English language. Uh, it's the first time we've launched a particular uh, gathering like that. There are complications with it. We've got the Mandarin gathering meeting in the hall while the family service meets in the church. They're both using the same children's program and uh, logistics are crazy, but fortunately someone else is sorting those out, which is good because that's not my strength. Uh, but it's, it's great to see that sort of ministry starting up. So I thought I might pray for that now and uh, pray for us as we come to look at God's word. Be great to have your Bibles open at that passage James just read, page 14, if you've got church Bibles. Also, there's an outline in the leaflet you received that'll help you if you get lost as I speak. Okay, so this will uh, just keep you on the straight and narrow. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great kindness to us. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you've given us a gospel to share. And Father, we commend those leaders being commissioned for that new Mandarin ministry in the city today. Uh, Please be with them, help them to uh, be faithful in proclaiming your word and training up a generation of leaders. Uh, Father, we ask that you and your kindness will cause that ministry to be one which has impact uh, throughout the world as people are sent out. And Father, we commend ourselves to you now as we consider your word. Uh, This passage we've just heard, such an evocative passage that you'll help us to gain insight both into your purposes and your plans for us so that we can live faithfully for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I want to start off with is, uh, what, what do you think you'd be prepared to do or lay on the line in your following of Jesus? Where would the, the limits on, on where you'd be prepared to be stretched when it comes to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So it might be uh, reputation. Yeah, we've had Israel Folau, haven't we, recently in the paper. He plays uh, rugby for Australia, and maybe not, not a game you're familiar with or interested in, but you would have heard his name in the press because he came out and said he was a man of Christian convictions, and therefore that led to certain conclusions which haven't been particularly well received uh, in Australia today. Now, I'm not arguing for the way he went about it or, um, or anything like that, but all I'm saying is because of his Christian convictions, he made a statement that obviously has made him fairly unpopular. Would you be prepared to lay your reputation on the line? What about if it came to your job? You know, where it became clear in your employment context that to be open about being a follower of Jesus would either reduce your capacity to be promoted or possibly even cause you to get kicked out of your job. So how would that affect your thinking about what you said or what you did? Now, what about friendship? Uh, I caught up with a guy a little while ago and he was a man I was trying to share the gospel with and we'd been friends for years and years and years and years. And at one stage he'd been very interested in the gospel and claimed to be a Christian. Now he says he's not. And as we went through uh, the gospel message, he eventually said to me, you believe that if I don't actually take hold of what you're saying, I don't put my trust in Jesus, that I will spend eternity in hell. Is that right? Now, I had a sense that our friendship had reached a crossroad at that point, you know, that it was a little bit on the line in terms of what he was saying. And you in your life, you'll know those moments where the ask from God, it seems a bit much. You know, like it, it just, you're not sure if it's something you can cope with. But in a sense, none of those things 
can prepare you for this encounter between Abraham and God when Isaac's life is on the line. It it really is. uh, It's hard to get your head around that sort of challenge. Let's, Let's look at it together. We're in Genesis 22, and God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, sometimes believers do some pretty unusual things trying to impress God or win branding points, you know, going up to a high mountain and praying for, you know, days and weeks and weeks and weeks or um, starving themselves in fast because they think that God might somehow be more impressed or some other, you know, spiritual manoeuvre to try and get themselves closer to God. And you might think, ah, maybe Abraham's doing that sort of thing here. You know, how can he impress God? I know, I'll sacrifice my son, you know. Except you can't think that, can you? And the reason is obvious before us. Because the, the idea here is not Abraham's, it's God's idea. And there is a clear command, a clear voice from God telling Abraham to take these steps. But of course, what we have is God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. That will immediately, or it should immediately, raise a whole series of questions in our mind about what is going on here. Because firstly, what we've got is God asking Abraham to do something immoral. There's no question about that, is there? Elsewhere in the Old Testament, child sacrifice is forbidden by God. And here, he instructs Abraham to commit child sacrifice. What's going on? Um, You know, if, if Stephen George came up to me at the end of this gathering and said, I felt quite inspired by that Bible reading today and I feel like God is telling me to go and kill my neighbour. Right? Let's say he said that. Right? You, some of you might even know who that neighbour is. Uh, <laughs> but, but let's say Stephen came up to me and said that. I would not say, Stephen, I perceive you to be a very spiritual man. <laughs> I would say, you're having problems with your neighbour? Go and sort them out. You know, like I wouldn't encourage him to take that sort of action. But you have this situation where God says, go and kill your son. It's immoral. But you know, the biggest question, if you've been reading through this section of the Bible, is what on earth is God thinking? Really, what's gotten into God's head at this moment? Now, I'm not trying to be blasphemous or anything, but understand where we've come in this storyline. Since Genesis chapter 12, God has been promising Abraham a child. He's even named the child and said, this child's name will be Isaac. By the time we get to chapter 21, Isaac is finally born. It has taken 25 years for this child to be born. And this child is the child of promise, the one God has based his plans for eternity on. That child, God says, go and kill him a chapter later after he is born. See, here is a command to do something that directly contradicts the promise that God has made. Right? It's immoral flies against all all we've seen that God is doing in this part of the Bible. And then the third question I've got as I read through this section of the Bible is this. Why does Abraham do it? 
See, what father would take this step and kill a child that he loves? God hasn't particularly given a reason for the instruction. You know, hasn't sort of rational, rationalised it. We know that from reading through this section of the Bible that Abraham wasn't slow to have an argument with God when he thought he didn't have it quite right. Yeah, he's always up for a discussion with God about how to get this, you know, get the actions in, in line properly. But here, no argument at all. He just gets up and does it. We're not even told the emotions that are going on. Like, I can't imagine the emotions for a father being put through this situation. But they're just stripped out of the passage. We don't know. What we're told, verse 3, is Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, and cut the wood. Just takes the actions. And then he sets out. There's no hesitation. Just obedience. And he proceeds with that course of action right up until the moment where he's about to kill Isaac. That essentially is the story. So, so what's going on in this incident? You notice I jumped over the first verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, what, what's the idea here behind this testing? Is, um, is God playing some sort of divine game with Abraham? You know, Abraham, how much do you love me? You know, do you love me this much? You know, do you love me this much? Do you love me enough to kill your son? You know, is it sort of that sort of divine test? Can I say, the God of the Bible is not petty or mean. He takes no delight in trying to attack the things that bring us pleasure or joy. God is not wired that way. God doesn't test for that reason. The idea here is more like a, uh, an athletics coach who is stretching an athlete to get better performance. That's the idea of the testing that's behind this. God's goal is to keep growing Abraham's trust in him so that he'll keep having confidence in God's faithfulness. Testing. Here's the question. Does God test us for the same sort of reason? Is that the way God operates today? Let me just read to you from James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And later in that same chapter, verse 12, we read... Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh, The trials idea that you pick up here in James is the same idea as testing back in Genesis chapter 22. It's the sort of thing that's designed to test us, to shape our character, and to actually prepare us for all eternity. 
You see, we know in the scheme of God that testing has a purpose. And the purpose is that the followers of Jesus will grow more like Jesus and at the same time know that God never abandons them. Let me read these marvellous verses from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. These will be verses that most of us are very familiar with. But listen to the way God speaks about continuing to shape and test us to become more like his son. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now that is a wonderful promise. The promise from God that nothing escapes his control or his authority and that he will use all things in order to shape us more like his son. Now can I say, if you're anything like me, then uh, you like to avoid heartache and pain like to avoid the things that destroy your happiness, suffering. Our desire generally is to be happy, to have plenty, not to face hardship. But let me say, in the economy of God, his goal is to grow us in trust in him and more like the Lord Jesus. And that's not a pain-free exercise. It's not an exercise that comes without God allowing things to come into our world that test us. So that through it, God will prove his faithfulness now and for eternity. God tests. I want to move on, though, and talk about the true nature of faith. I touched on this last week, but I just want to come back to it. Christians, I think, are very confused when it comes to this topic of what it means to have have faith. Often I'll hear people say, yeah, if only I had more faith, then I would see God do greater miracles. If only I had more faith, then these sort of outcomes would become possible. I'd see miracles, uh, healings, wonders, signs. You know, if only I had more faith. And when people talk like that, the focus becomes on them and their faith and how much they have. Can I say, from a biblical point of view, though, faith is always about trusting in God. It's not about us. It is about God. And when you have a promise from God, then you can be confident he will keep his word. When you have no promise from God, then you're still to trust God and obey him. Have a promise He will keep his word. No promise from God, still trust God and know his character and faithfulness. Now, Abraham is a wonderful example, actually, of a man who trusts God, even though he struggles to trust God, as you read through this this section of the Bible. Back in chapter 12, Abraham has this promise, a promise that God will give him many descendants, right? Uh, One child, through whom there will be many descendants. It takes nine chapters spanning 25 years 
in order for God to produce Isaac for him to be born. Then in chapter 21, he's born. Listen to the way the Bible speaks about the birth of Isaac. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. God had said he would do it. God had promised he would do it. And he did it. God promised that Isaac would be born. And through him, the whole world would be blessed. But now... God instructs Abraham to kill Isaac. The one God had promised would bless the whole world. Notice how it's referred to in Genesis chapter 22. Take your only son, sorry, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now those of us familiar with these chapters of the Bible, you know that a couple of chapters ago, Abraham has another son. His name is Ishmael. She's born to a slave woman that his wife has. Ishmael. So here God says, take your son, your only son, and you think, well, it's not the only one. (laughs) There's another guy floating around somewhere. But understand the point that's being made here. God has said, Through you and Sarah, you'll have a son. His name will be Isaac. And through Isaac, the whole world would be blessed. So this is the only son of that promise. God says, take that only son and kill him. Do you understand why there's such a tension around this this very incident? In Hebrews chapter 11, we're given this divine insight into what's going on for Abraham and his thinking and his logic at this time when he receives the instruction. Hebrews 11. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. God had promised that Isaac would be the one through whom the world would be blessed. And Abraham believed that God would keep his promise. He wasn't sure how he would do it, but he believed it would happen. Now, can I come back just for a moment and talk a little more about this question of faith? Faith is believing in the promises of God or when you don't have a promise, trusting in God. Here, I think, is the the area of trouble that Christians often get themselves into. They often create promises for God to keep. I'm trusting in God that he will do X when God has never promised to do X. Let me give you an example and just try and flesh it out a bit. Uh, When I joined the staff team of Trinity, the senior minister at the time was a guy called Reg Piper. And I remember him uh, in a situation where there was a woman in the congregation who was dying of cancer. And she had friends around her, and one friend in particular who said that God had revealed to her that this woman was not going to die from cancer, but would recover and be healed. 
And this woman who had this promise from God had instructed all the friends and family around this woman that they were not to talk to this woman about the possibility of dying because God had revealed she was going to be healed and to raise that sense of doubt about that possibility would be to undermine the woman's faith in the promises of God. What that meant for a pastor like uh, Reg was that he wasn't able to sit down with a woman and read about the promises of God for all eternity in the Bible that she had and the security that they brought her. He was banned from doing that. And the woman died of cancer just a short time later. Now, do you understand what had happened there? Uh, the person who had the word from God didn't have a word from God at all. They had constructed a promise from God and urged people to put their belief in it. It's not unusual for Christians to say, God has told me he will do such and such. And often God has not told them he will do such and such. They're just hoping that God will do such and such. Now, come back to the the example. Can God heal a woman who has cancer? Yeah, of course he can. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. You know, like, do you think he's, you know, just got one arm or something? You know, like, of course he can heal anyone he chooses to heal. He has that power. He has that authority. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't pray for people to be healed. Of course you should. People you love and care for, it's appropriate to be praying uh, for them in all sorts of different ways. But understand that it's different from saying God has promised something will happen when he has not promised that at all. Faith is believing in the promises of God or if God has not made a promise to believe in the God who is always faithful even if you don't know what the outcomes will be. Be clear about the nature of faith. So what has God promised us? Lots of things. But I tell you, he has promised he will raise us to life beyond the grave if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised that. That is rock solid, bankable. Jim Elliott, a man who took, um, uh, was a missionary in South America and he wanted to take the gospel to a group of um, a tribe in South America that hadn't yet heard it. Uh, 30 years old, roughly, had a wife, young child, preschool, went out with friends to this place to speak the gospel to this tribe and was speared on the first day, died, without even being able to get a word of the gospel across to this tribe at all. He wrote in his diary just before uh, he went out on this mission, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So he was secure in the promises of God for all eternity that meant he could risk his life because he knew he wasn't going to handle that anyway. So he was willing to give it up for the sake of the gospel. So he understand the true nature of faith, and understand that Abraham here had a clear promise from God. And then he had a command from God, and he didn't quite know what God was going to do with that. Then the final thing I just want to focus on from this chapter is the nature of the fact that God 
provides. What, what helped Abraham trust God in this situation? It was that God had walked with him, provided for him, and kept his promises to him without fail for years and years and years. And Abraham, it was at the point where he believed that God would keep his word. Listen to the way he speaks about taking his son up into the mountain. Chapter 22, verse 8. Abraham says, God himself will provide. He will provide. Then in verses 13 and 14, after the incident, we're told, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Literally, uh, what this is saying is, the Lord sees the need and he meets the need. Sees the need, meets the need. Friends, can I, can I ask what helps us trust God when we're under pressure, when we're under the pump? What helps you to take risks to serve him when you know it's going to come at a cost? Isn't it because we know that he has provided for us? Uh, more so, isn't it that we know he has provided for us on the mountain of the Lord. Abraham was told by God to travel for three days to Mount Moriah. I've often, when I've read this chapter, I've thought, why on earth do you make a father travel for three days with a son with an instruction to kill him? Just seems like torture, don't you reckon? Like, just let's get it done now, you know. Three days to a mountain. Mount Moriah. It's mentioned one other time in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. This is the place where Solomon built the temple of the Lord on Mount Moriah, Jerusalem. When Abraham says, on on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, I think he probably spoke more truly than he realised. The mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I mean, here in this instant, God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac. Great provision. But friends, 1,500 years later, another son, the only beloved son, made a trek up the same mountain with the wood for the sacrifice on his back. He was the descendant of Abraham and Isaac. He was the bearer of the promises of God. He was the lamb who was to be sacrificed to take away the sin of the whole world. But on this occasion, God's hand was not withheld. Romans chapter 8 captures the language of Genesis 22 in talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The one who's given his own son as a sacrifice for the sin of the whole world, 
He is the one who provides. He has provided for us. He is faithful. Friends, I, I don't know the challenges or the tests that you're going to face in life. Uh, I can't predict those. I can't, can't even know the challenges that you're struggling with to trust God right now. I don't know. Uh, will you be someone who is taken by God to a country where it's extremely dangerous for you to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ and your life will be on the line? Almost certainly you'll be called upon to risk friendships because you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and to speak about him and people needing to respond to the Lord Jesus will create tension with those that you care for. You may find yourself uh, losing a job because you're a clear follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and that may become increasingly unpopular in our society. I know a young bloke uh, from within our network who got a job out of university, took him to Melbourne. He was working there for less than 12 months and his employer insisted uh, that he do something that he knew lacked integrity. And he explained that he couldn't do that because he was a Christian and basically was given an ultimatum. Uh, resign or do what we've asked you to do. And he resigned. It took him 12 months to find that job. He's now been out of a job for 12 months since resigning. I don't know what you'll be called upon by God to do as you follow him and serve him. I don't know if there's a moral battle going on in your life where God has made something very clear to you in his word about how you should live and you're not sure if you can trust him because you feel like you might miss out. You'll only do those things if you are convinced that God is completely trustworthy that he is a Lord who has provided for you in the clearest way possible in the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore secured you for all eternity so that you are settled and strong in him forever. Friends, God has passed the ultimate test. He didn't spare his own son but gave him up for you. Therefore, you can trust his promises and therefore you can with confidence obey his word. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, this is just such a strikingly evocative uh, part of your word. And yet it takes, a back, takes us back to your very character and purposes. We thank you that you were and continue to be faithful to Abraham in all of life's ups and downs, even despite his own faithlessness. Father, we thank you that you did provide. But Father, we thank you even more so that you provided on the mountain of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that 
You gave up your only son, your beloved son, to die for the sin of the whole world, to die for our sin. And Father, we thank you that in doing that, you proved your very character and purposes and faithfulness. Father, we pray that we will, where we have promises, be absolutely confident that you'll keep your word and we will trust them. Father, we pray that uh, we don't have promises about a particular situation in life, that we'll keep trusting you. Father, we pray you'll help us to do that uh, through the times of testing as you shape us more like your son. Father, we express our confidence in your promises that you've guaranteed us eternal life with you and that nothing in this world can interfere or interrupt that. Uh, Father, we pray that our vision, our sight, our understanding will be filled with a knowledge of who you are and your plans and purposes for us. And that, that will just dominate every phase of our existence. And so, Father, we commend ourselves to you in the name of your precious Son, your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.